Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I had one rather revealing, I thought, situation with Don Siegel. He was offered a picture called The Looters. Mm-hmm. Don was not available. He couldn't do it. He saw my first picture, Targets, and it recommended me. I agreed to do the picture. We started to work on the script. Mm-hmm. And then years passed. Finally, guess who directed The Looters? Yeah, Don Siegel. Don Siegel. He read the script that Polly Platt and I wrote, but he didn't use that. He had a completely different picture. And uh, I kind of resented that. Three months before he died, he called me, out of the blue. Mm-hmm and said, I just want to tell you, that was a good script you wrote on the looters, I'm sorry I couldn't use it, but you know, I'm a director auteur. <laughs> I said, I know, Don, that's nice of you to call. Isn't that a sweet call? That's a very sweet call. I mean, one of the things about Don Siegel is... That's director auteur Quentin Tarantino sitting across from fellow director auteur Peter Bogdanovich. Last picture show was released the same year as Dirty Harry. So odd. Peter is telling Quentin's stories about the prolific and pioneering Don Siegel. We have some clips of Don speaking. Maybe maybe you'd like to hear it. I'd love to. Don Siegel interview, Psy One. Long before Siegel made that late-in-life apology to Peter, he invited Peter to his office on the Universal Studios lot back in 1968 for an interview. You haven't got that on now. Yeah, it's on now. Don Siegel's career in Hollywood spanned decades, studios, and genres. He's best known as an action director and for his collaborations with Clint Eastwood. But another thing that he was very good at is audience misdirection. It's a narrative But Peter and Quentin have gone off the beaten path, discussing Siegel's adaptation of a novel called The Looters. The title of the film is Charlie Varick, named for the protagonist. Charlie Varick, played by Walter Matthau, is a middling crook whose latest caper, a bank robbery in a small town, has him on the run from the cops and the mob. It's one of the lesser-known entries in Don Siegel's filmography, but Quentin Tarantino is an unrivaled cinematic savant, fluent in Hollywood obscurity. I've read the Charlie Varick script, I've seen Charlie Varick, I've read your script, and I've read the original John Reese novel, The Looters. Yeah. It's funny, though, because if you only know the story from watching Charlie Varick, yeah. you don't know the story at all. At all. I mean, at all. It's true. <laughs> it's shocking how different both your script and the book is compared to the movie he made. But what's amazing in the book is Charlie Varick is not only not a hero, he's a pathetic 
horribly vicious, violent creep throughout the whole thing. It's like, this is Charlie Varick when you actually read the book. Huh. You make him you make him a lot nicer. You're coming from an you come from a nicer place. But one thing that's actually <laughs> kind of interesting from reading your screenplay is like, so you're writing it like in 69. 70, something, like that, yeah. something like that. So like, that's what you would have done instead of Last Picture Show. That's right. I'm lucky now, I didn't. In the book, the character is kind of a mean old man, yeah. but the one thing that I've ever seen in any of your pieces that looks like you're catering just a little bit to the zeitgeist is you make Charlie Varick younger. Huh. You, know, you even have him say, hey, it's cool, baby, or something like that, <laughs> which is lines I never thought I would ever read <laughs> uh, written by uh, Peter Bogdanovich. You have the script still, right? I still have the script, yeah, that we did. Would that script work today? Probably not. Well, no, I actually think it could work today. I mean, I, ultimately, I think the story that is built on the book, The Looters, is maybe dusty. Yeah, a little bit. But the way the story's told mm-hmm. could totally work. Because one of the things about the book that stands out is it's not about Charlie Varick. Charlie Varick is simply just a character. He's one of the many. He's one of the many characters. And the whole point of the book is like every character gets their own chapter. Yeah, that's right. It's an ensemble piece. Yes, it's a complete ensemble piece. You don't break it down into chapters the way he does in a book, but you do, it, it's, you know, you have an Altman series of characters. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. not about Charlie Varick. It's about 15, 16 people. That's what nobody liked. Yeah. Because they couldn't handle it. But that's the thing that makes it modern. Yeah, and that's what I do in a lot of my pictures. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, all of that was a long time ago. <laughs> Listening back to this conversation between Peter Bogdanovich and Quentin Tarantino is so bittersweet for me. Peter absolutely treasured his relationship with his friend Q, as he called him, and friend doesn't quite do it justice. They were kindred spirits and obsession, both completely consumed by their love of movies. The history, the craft, the characters on either side of the lens, above the line and below, on and off the set. They were like two little kids, and Hollywood was their sandbox. I got to witness it firsthand. In recent years, when Peter was living in New York, he actually stayed in Quentin's guest house when he came to L.A. And sometimes the three of us would get together for a movie night and watch 35mm prints from Quentin's private stash. Peter and Quentin would go blow for blow with opinions and anecdotes late into the night. They didn't always agree, and I think it was more fun for them when they didn't. But there was one director in particular whose films always seemed to land in the middle of the Venn diagram of their individual tastes and interests. Don Siegel. I'm Louise Stratton, and this is One Handshake Away. From Don Siegel to Quentin Tarantino. Hi, Quentin. Why did you choose Don Siegel of all the directors on the list? The two I thought would be the funnest to talk about and that I had the most knowledge at my fingertips about was between Hawks and Siegel. And I figured Hawks would be almost too much of a cliche of me to to choose. That's what most people would expect me to choose. And then also in this last year, because I've been writing my own cinema book, there's a few different chapters on Don Siegel's work. And so I've literally spent a year studying his work. So I'm pretty well up on his filmography. I think Don Siegel was one of the great action directors in the history of Hollywood. But while other directors of his time period, like late 40s and the 50s, they shot action. Siegel shot violence. 
He didn't just shoot action. He shot violence. There's a violent quality. Uh, there's, a, there's a brutality to what the characters do and where the characters are coming from that I think is really strong. Violence is a trait often and strongly associated with Quentin Tarantino. He routinely explains, justifies, and defends his motivation, interest, and application of violence in his films. Here's what Don Siegel told Peter about his own violent reputation. I'm a very violent person, although I have a very calm exterior. But I only like the violence to be essential to the telling of the story. I don't like violence for violence. I'm extremely uncomfortable with violence for violence. I think so many pictures today go out of their way and linger on it. I think it's in very bad taste, and I I think it's very poor drama. And it gets so that that after a while, you're just bored with it. Mm. It It has no meaning for them. Siegel told Peter that he wanted the violence in his movies to be meaningful. He wasn't interested in violence for violence's sake. Quentin Tarantino has made similar statements about himself. But frivolous or not, Siegel's propensity for violent scenes in his movies isn't overstated. But now to go through the scenes of graphic violence, why they're shocking or why they're exciting is to do them a disservice. Because you're divorcing them from why they're so effective. So I wouldn't want to just go through a laundry list of of this sequence versus that sequence versus this sequence versus that sequence. However, one that I do not feel bad about highlighting because it's the opening scene of the film is the opening of his television remake of the movie The Killers with uh, Lee Marvin. And Clue Gulliger. And the great Clue Gulliger, right, that you used as well in uh, Last Picture Show. Yeah. In 1964, Don Siegel directed The Killers, a suspenseful crime thriller based on a short story by Ernest Hemingway. It stars Angie Dickinson and John Cassavetes, alongside the aforementioned Lee Marvin and Clue Gulliger as two well-dressed hitmen, as stylish as they are violent, in their tailored suits and dark sunglasses. It's worth noting the resemblance to Vincent Vega and Jules Winfield in Pulp Fiction, as well as the entire heist crew in Reservoir Dogs. Here's what Don Siegel said to Peter about his modish sociopaths. I wanted my killers to be well-dressed and look, you know, just like Madison Avenue, or the guys of the Black Tower here. And I did dress them well, and they looked good. I I didn't want them to look like thugs. And the thing about it was, aside from the fact that the characters seem to predate the Blues Brothers, <laughs> they're walking around in their suits and their dark glasses and their pork pie hats as they go about doing their job. The way the film starts is they show up at an office or a school for the blind. May I help you, please? There's a blind receptionist on duty. Mrs. Olson from the Folgers coffee commercials, oh no less, okay, is playing the blind receptionist. And they immediately start terrorizing her. They start terrorizing this older blind woman. Where is he, lady? He's upstairs. You just sit there, relax, take a little nap. Everything's going to be all right, you understand? And it's just, it's shocking. It's just absolutely shocking. And what it does, and this is what Siegel has been known to do, the shockingness and the surprisingness of the violence rivets your attention for the rest of the movie. 
It's true. From now on, the movie has your attention. Because you don't know what's going to happen. Because of that sequence. Yeah. Now, at a certain point, I think it gets mundane because it switches its focus from the killers to uh, John Cassavetti's uh, Johnny North character, which is pretty mundane. Uh, but I think that's a problem with the few of Siegel's movies, where his antagonists are so drastically more interesting than his protagonist yeah. <laughs> that you, you have divided loyalties. You're resentful that the movie's not about Lee Marvin and Clue Gulliger. That's who you want to see. Yeah, that's true. Like it's called The Killers. Why are we watching this? Well, yeah. Why are we watching Johnny North? <laughs> What's your favorite film of Seagulls? Dirty Harry. I think you can quibble about this one or that one, but I think Dirty Harry is so drastically his best film. I mean, it's just a really terrific audience picture. It's about as good as an audience picture can get. Really works. Yeah. I remember the reaction of the audience sitting in the theater in 1971 with the film. And I saw it like about three times. And I remember the audience just loved it. The audience may have loved it, but it was polarizing to the critics. The iconic Dirty Harry Callahan, played by Clint Eastwood, used his 44 Magnum to render justice his way on the crime-ridden streets of San Francisco. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, bunk? Some people to this day feel that Dirty Harry is disturbing in its moral ambiguity. That it glorifies the police and promotes right-wing political Sir, agendas. I don't want any more trouble like you had last year in the Fillmore district. Understand? That's my policy. Yeah, well, when an adult male is chasing a female uh, with intent to commit rape, I shoot the bastard. That's my policy. Intent? How did you establish that? Well, a naked man is chasing a woman through an alley with a butcher knife and a heart on it. I figure he isn't out collecting for the Red Cross. The themes explored in Dirty Harry are undeniably relevant, and it also feels very contemporary in the modern film and television landscape. In many ways, Dirty Harry provided cover fire for a squadron of character archetypes to gain ground in the mainstream. The hard-boiled cop who plays by his own rules. The unstoppable vigilante with an unshakable personal code. The flawed anti-hero who we can't help but root for. These kinds of characters are commonplace today, but in 1971, Dirty Harry was quite controversial. You know, I was at the first screening he had in Hollywood at one of the studios, and the first thing he says to me is, I don't know what people are going to think about this. And he was terrified because he's, he's very left-wing. <laughs> right. That's what he was worried about. Yeah, you even said, like, he said, like, I think all my liberal friends are going to disown me. <laughs> exactly. That's what he was afraid of. You know, it was easy to lay it on the feet of this right-wing idea, which is where most of the liberal-leaning critics attacked it from. He takes the law into his own hands to see his own version of justice. Right, exactly. But that's almost like a Siegel trait. <laughs> that's not just a Dirty Harry trait. That's a Siegel, that's a Siegel trait as far as his characters are concerned. I think that uh, I am that character. Certainly, you know, at, at studios, I'm that character. Where you want to take it lying down, where you talk back, mm -hmm. where you fight back, where you're not uh, one of the large group of people who just go with the tide. Mm -hmm. 
you're much happier when you're not that kind of person. That's for, that's for certain. And the violence that's in these people, obviously you, you feel it in yourself too, so. Latent, but yes, I definitely do. As Quentin said earlier, Don Siegel didn't shoot action, he shot violence. And Dirty Harry is the purest distillation of that idea. But the brutality of the film's hero seems downright tame in comparison to the depravity of its villain, a deranged serial killer that goes by the moniker of Scorpio. You doesn't want to go, get off right here, huh? I want to go home to What? I want to go home to You want to go home to see what? Sing, sing, sing in this scene, Scorpio, played by Andy Robinson, has hijacked a school bus and taken a group of young children hostage. I think Andy Robinson actually gives the best performance in any Siegel movie. He was so good that he stalled his career. For 10 years, whenever he showed up in anything else, no, that's Scorpio. The performance was just so earth-shattering. It was just so, you just, he was he was Scorpio whenever he showed up. It pretty much started, forget about the cop taking the law into his own hands or the renegade cop genre, which is the genre unto itself. It really started the serial killer film genre, which is like a, a huge genre that has been going ever since, and especially on television. But that genre really officially, the way we think of that now, started with Dirty Harry. Wow. And they even use like a real life serial killer as the, the jumping off point because Scorpio is meant to evoke the Zodiac killer out of San Francisco. But one of the things about it, seeing it back then, you couldn't believe, just as an audience member, I'm talking about me as a little kid, but also just the adults around me, they couldn't believe the depravity of Scorpio. It seemed unbelievable just how fucked up this dude was. But as time has gone on, we've realized... It wasn't so wrong. It was, yeah, he wasn't... You know, the, the, exaggerating. It wasn't that exaggerated. Yeah, yeah. But it actually just tells us who we were then. We had an innocence when it came to that type of violence that we do not possess anymore. But we had then. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last.
You're listening to the opening sequence of Don Siegel's 1979 film, Escape from Alcatraz, starring Clint Eastwood. Eastwood plays Frank Morris, a convicted bank robber notorious for breaking out of prisons. The film opens with Morris arriving at a dock during a heavy rainstorm on a San Francisco night in 1960. He's flanked by two police officers who load him onto a boat bound for Alcatraz. When he arrives, he's hit with a blinding spotlight from a guard tower. He's loaded into the back of a bus, transported to the gates of the prison, and taken inside for processing. Siegel directed great action sequences, but you know he didn't do cinematic set pieces. That was not his thing. He wasn't Leone. He didn't go in for something like that. No. However, in something like Escape from Alcatraz, that whole opening sequence of Frank Morris being processed through Alcatraz yeah. uh, shows up in the rain. There's a rainstorm going on. He shows up in a suit. They look at him like cattle. They strip him down. He has that naked walk through Alcatraz. I don't know if that's realistic or not, but I buy it in the movie. It's, it's, yeah. it's terrific in the film. And, you know, Eastwood himself looks like he's chiseled from Rodin, yeah, all right, from a block of granite. And they put him in the cell. And then the first line that you really hear in the movie, Welcome to Alcatraz. Welcome to Alcatraz. Boom, just as a Mario Bava, like, lightning strike happens. That, you know, puts the final pen flourish on this opening 10-minute cinematic set piece. It's just absolutely terrific. I think it's a late career masterwork. When it comes to Escape from Alcatraz, Eastwood, it's a trust of Siegel that he wouldn't have had for the Alkalites. I don't see him doing that naked walk through Alcatraz with anybody but Don Siegel. He, he wouldn't do it for himself. I think he'd be too modest to do it with himself. He wouldn't do it, you're right. And he wouldn't do it with James Fargo. He wouldn't do it with any of those guys. But I even think that there's even like an aspect of Eastwood and Siegel just having fun, where it's like, okay, how long can we do the picture before Frank Morris says a line? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And like he doesn't really say his first line till somewhere around like minute 13 or minute 14 in the movie. And it's not a big deal line either, but it's like, how long can we keep him quiet? And that's the kind of game I can imagine those two guys playing. Oh, yeah, because they really got along. Yeah. And they'd heard the chimes at midnight, as they say. Absolutely. <laughs> Very much so. Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood made five films together. Escape from Alcatraz was their final collaboration. Their first film together was 1968's Coogan's Bluff. Here comes Clint Eastwood in Coogan's Bluff. Clint Eastwood is Coogan. Eastwood plays a lawman from Arizona who travels to New York City in pursuit of a fugitive. And Coogan gives New York 24 hours to get out of town. Coogan's Bluff was in production when Peter interviewed Don Siegel. What will Coogan's Bluff be like? I wish I knew. I'm not sure about my present picture, Coogan's Bluff, because I'm in the middle of cutting it. It uh, could well turn out to be a successful picture. I hope it does, uh, though I don't know at this moment. Is the lead, is, is Clint Eastwood a social misfit? Clint Eastwood has an absolute fixation as an anti-hero. He, uh, this is the actor now. The actor, yes. This is his credo in life in all his films so far that he's done. 
And it has been very successful, certainly for Clint Eastwood and for those who own a piece of the picture. And he insists on being an anti-hero very strongly. I've never worked with an actor that was less conscious of his good image. Coogan's Bluff was an important movie for Eastwood because Eastwood had yet to establish himself outside of the spaghetti western. That's right. I mean, just him doing a movie in sync sound was like, well, can he do that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, can he work with anybody but Leone? Can he do anything other than a western? And with Coogan's Bluff... Answered he, all those questions. Yes, exactly. I mean, well, he bridges the gap between the, the cowboy hero he was famous for and the cop character he will become famous for. It's a brilliant blending of the two, actually. It is absolutely a brilliant blending of the two. But Siegel was brought on not just as a good director, but to, to help launch, to fashion an American vehicle. Right. For uh, Eastwood to actually fulfill the potential that he could have in studio films. And um, nailed it. And I think Eastwood saw that in Siegel. They always were in, um, it seems like they were in clever cahoots about how best to capitalize on Eastwood's persona. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Renoir said a great thing. He said, when you gather around you, you're making a film, you must gather around you not associates, not collaborators, but. Conspirators. Yeah, very well said. <laughs> and that's what you're saying yeah. between Clint and, and Don. I'm going to read you what Clint said about Don in another interview. Sure. I said something to Clint about, I think he learned something from Don Siegel. And Clint said, yes, I did. I think I learned something from everybody I've ever worked with. You always learn something, something good or bad, or something you don't want to do again, or you do want to do again. But Don was a fascinating guy. He always had this contention with producers. I don't know what a producer does, he'd say. And so when we did Dirty Harry, I said, you're going to be the producer and the director. That way you'll have nobody to be mad at. So he laughed and he got mad at the unit manager instead. But he always had somebody he was a little mugged at. He had to be angry at somebody. I also think that that is also just sort of a, um, it's a different world. I think that is the place of being a director working under a studio system. You're on, you're under contract. I mean, nowadays people tend to choose who they work with. You would have people back then work and like, when they finished a movie, no, I hate that fucking son of a bitch. I never want to be in another room with him again. (laughs) And so- Everybody could be disappointed by the people they ended up working with. The actor could think, oh, I finally got a good script, and they cast a director that... uh, Doesn't get it. Doesn't get it. Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood were compatible, but it wasn't always that way for Siegel and the stars of his films. He talked to Peter about a contentious relationship he had with another anti-hero icon, the King of Cool, Steve McQueen. In 1962, McQueen was making a film about World War II called Hell is for Heroes, but he clashed with the director, and so Siegel inherited the project, along with its disgruntled star. Steve McQueen is is extremely difficult, and uh, it couldn't have started out worse between us on the picture, Uh, because I guess he probably thought that I was a company man coming in, which I certainly wasn't. And we didn't get along at all, at all. When Steve McQueen came in, he was making remarks like, uh, you know, you and I are gonna make this picture, if it's gonna be made at all. And he said, I hope you don't mind if I come up with 4,000 ideas, and they became very modest, and only 3,000 will be any good. 
And I said, I don't care who the idea comes from, you know. And then uh, he made several other things, like he likes to know what lenses are being used. And he hopes I don't mind if I stick my head in the camera. And I said, I finally got angry. And I hit the desk, because I'll tell you one thing. I said, I'm directing the picture, not you. That was the end of the conference, and he was very insulted that I did this. He kind of Indian wrestled himself to hold himself back that he would destroy me physically. And I was nervous because the deal hadn't been set, and I thought, well, I've blown another picture. But to cut a long story short, uh, we did get along very well on the picture. He ultimately believed in me, and I believed in him. So you and McQueen basically agreed on the story? Yes, we did. Mm -hmm. And we worked well together. And then uh, suddenly everything became marvelous and became very, very good friends, and we did get along very well. And of course, I have greatest respect for his acting ability. I, I think he takes himself much too seriously, and I think he has to have a lot of confidence in a director. I think he needs direction. Very much, but he's he's very talented. I think it's one of his best performances. I think so, and uh, it was interesting. Like uh, for instance, he can't cry. So and I had this marvelous concept where when he comes into a big close-up, he stops, and then tears appear in his eyes. For the first time, you see him break up. It was fine, excepting he couldn't cry. So I said, "Don't worry about it," and I had onions. With a, with a blower and we blew onions out and nothing could make him cry. And I took a tremendous chance because he has a violent temper. Just before the take, I slapped him in the face as hard as I could and ran and we're shooting. He had enough discipline to go through the shot, but he still didn't cry. But but he was willing to go that route, any amount of pain, anything to do a good job. Mm -hmm. Very exciting guy to work with that way, I think. And, and strangely enough, we've never worked together since which surprised me because we got along so well. Hmm. I think he's doing a little rewriting of history about the idea that they patched things up. Uh, it doesn't sound like they patched. It sounded like they got through the shoot. Yeah. And at some point, McQueen didn't think he was just a company stooge. Yeah. Just shooting the schedule. He's still in the Hollywood game, so he's not putting down <laughs> McQueen when there's still a possible McQueen movie in the future. <laughs> Because in your book, he talks about how he almost got into fights with McQueen at the beginning, and then he patched up. And then we became great friends. We became great friends. And then uh, same thing with Michael Parks. He talks about, oh, well, it, was, it was very tough with Michael Parks at the beginning. Just like McQueen, we almost fought. But then we became great friends. We became great friends. <laughs> then in the other books, years later, no, they did not become great friends. <laughs> <laughs> and as you well know, when you stepped away from the getaway, as far as they were concerned, there was only two choices to replace you on the getaway. It was Peckinpah and Siegel. And Siegel wasn't even a choice because of the bad relationship they had on Hell is for Heroes. Oh, that's right. That's right. As Quentin just said, Peter clashed with Steve McQueen at one point, too. McQueen saw the last picture show and was impressed by it and Peter. So in 1972, McQueen tapped him to direct a heist thriller called The Getaway. I think you'll like it, Willie. I think he got to you. At least I got to him. At the same time, Peter was approached by Warner Brothers to direct What's Up, Doc, starring Barbara Streisand. Peter was trying to figure out a way to do both, but McQueen caught wind of it, and Peter was fired from the getaway. 
In stepped one of Don Siegel's protégés, another virtuoso of violence, Sam Peckinpah. Do you have a particular technique of working with actors or coaching actors? You deal with actors differently depending on the actor, their, yeah, the actor and their needs and what they're what they're looking for. Some actors really invest in character and the background of their character and the history of their character. In a situation like that, I know everything about the character. I've made it a point to figure out things that I can just, even so I can just explain it to the actor mm -hmm. if a question comes up. Their backstories. Yes, exactly. I mean, there was like certain backstories that I put in my book, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that I just made myself learn so I could, when I talked to Brad or when I talked to Leo, I'd be able to uh, yeah. explain why they did this as opposed to that. Or something that happened in their past that put them on the road that they are now. You know, so some people are really into something like that. Then I'm absolutely your man. And some people want to come up with some of the things on their own, but they know I'm a, you know, as a writer, they know I'm a knowledgeable source on that part. But then also some actors are are more about being directed on the set on the day. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm doing this scene. We're doing take four of this scene and give me something that makes me kick into a different gear. And then some actors don't want to be dealt with like that. on a take-by-take -take basis. They're just, they're giving you an overall, and if there's a problem, let them know. Yeah. Look, I'm a writer-director, so I'm obviously going to be coming from a place of an actor that does my dialogue well, an actor that takes my characters to a, a special place. So in that regards, Christoph Waltz and Sam Jackson have a special place in my heart because they're just really good interpreters yeah, they're wonderful. of my dialogue. I do have a strong personal connection with those two guys in particular. I had a situation in the case of when I cast Christoph Waltz in Inglorious Bastards, playing the SS officer Hans Landa. When I wrote it, I thought, oh, wow, I think I've written the best character I've ever written. Now I have to find somebody to play him, and the character might be unplayable. <laughs> you know, and the reason I thought he might be unplayable is because his facility with language was so easy. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know he was a linguistic genius when I started writing the character, but then he just kept revealing that aspect of himself. And, and so I realized at a certain point, I need to cast a linguistic genius to play this role. Interesting. Or he'll always remain on the page. The depth won't be there. It just won't be there. If, I mean, look, he can, he can spend three months learning how to speak French. He can spend three months learning how to speak this language versus that language, but it won't have the finesse that it would have with a linguistic genius. All the actors in Germany knew about that part because everybody in the German film industry knew that we were in town doing this movie and, and all the different actors had a chance to read the script. And everybody was wondering who's going to play Hans Landa. In fact, they figured what we were going to do is what Hollywood always does. You go down there and then you look at all the local talent and you make them all jump through hoops and then you cast Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> or you cast Anthony Hopkins <laughs> to play the role. And then they're like, oh, why in the fuck did we let them talk? Why did we even consider the idea that they would consider a German actor for this? But that wasn't the case. Not only that, everybody in the industry knew who Christoph Waltz was. But he didn't do many movies. He did mostly German miniseries. But they knew who he was. And so when I cast him, most people in the German television film industry goes, of course, 
oh, Christoph Waltz, he's perfect casting. We would never cast him because we think of him as a TV actor. But Tarantino doesn't know the difference between a German movie actor and a German TV actor. He just cast the fellow he thought was perfect for the role. And we can see it, yes, exactly, he's perfect for the role. So, exactly what would Christoph Waltz do now that he actually has this fantastic role of, of Hans Landa? So, we had our big script reading. That's a really important day, as far as I'm concerned. That's like the closest I ever get to looking at the film as an entirety before any cutting is done. It's like I've cast a bunch of these actors. Now we're hearing the story at a go. It's fun. And it's not just broken down into scenes. We're actually telling the story. We're, we're performing the story. And it's like the first time any of us have seen it like this. We've, we've read it, but we, that was just our own little private experience. Now it's a public experience. And I'm not expecting the actors to deliver the level of work that they're going to do after a commitment to making the movie. But I'm expecting they didn't do more than just walk through it. And I fired actors for walking through it and had somebody else. But in the case of Christoph Waltz playing Hans Landa, I knew that everybody was going to, even the American, were like, who is this guy? And what's he going to do with this role? And so I took Christoph aside, like not just before this scene, but like earlier on. I said, look, here's the deal. When we do the script reading, everyone's going to wait to see what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. But these are all the actors you're going to have to surprise and have to do big scenes with. So I don't want them to get a handle on you. I don't want you to be bad in the script reading, but I don't want you to get caught up in the whole drama of competing with the other actors. I want you to subdue it. So on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the best, give me a six. <laughs> And don't rise above a six. Huh. Six will get the job done. Six will let everybody know I cast the right person. But you still won't have revealed any of your true colors yet. Yeah, yeah, it's serviceable. And that's all I need. And then when it comes to the other parts, except for the opening sequence with the French farmer, because that's like 20 minutes. Of course, we're going to rehearse that. But other than that, I'd rather you not rehearse. Hmm. with the other act. I don't want Brad to see what you're going to do. I don't want Diane Kruger to see what you're going to do. I don't want Melanie Laurent to see what you're going to do. And then Christoph's thing was, look, all everything you just said makes sense. However, I don't want to be robbed from my rehearsal time with you. Hmm. So maybe I don't rehearse some of the other scenes with the other actors, but I want to rehearse them with you during the rehearsal time. I'm like, fine, great. Yeah, great, that's great. He's extraordinary in the part. He's amazing in it. Perfect match yeah. between the character and the actor. The role he will later win Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival. He won Best Supporting Actor for the Academy Award and Best Supporting Actor for the Golden Globes. Pretty good. That's what he will do later, but he hasn't done it yet. So I got my linguistic genius. It worked out great. We did great. Extraordinary, <laughs> yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. 
At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. When I was writing Django Unchained, the biggest box office movie star at that time was Will Smith. So people were like, well, are you going to go with Will Smith for, for Django Unchained? And my initial thought was, no, nah, he's, he's too famous. He's too big. You've got to meet Django attached to that chain gang. And he should be like, you know, seventh guy from the left. He shouldn't be this big singing movie star attached to that chain gang. However... Elvis is so fantastic in Flaming Star mm. that it made me have to reconsider that idea. Oh, interesting. I go, well, if Elvis can do it, who's to say Will Smith can't do it? Quentin Tarantino's comparing his consideration of Will Smith for the lead role in Django Unchained to the casting of Elvis Presley as the headliner in Don Siegel's 1960 Western, Flaming Star. Now, at the end of the day, it all worked out best because Jimmy Fox is more the real cowboy than Will Smith is. And so I think actually for everybody's sake, including Will Smith, the proper actor ended up playing the role. But it was Elvis's strength in Flaming Star made me consider the idea of Will Smith. It may be a stretch to compare the star power of any contemporary celebrity to that of Elvis Presley in 1960, but Quentin's point is in the plot. Flaming Star is a dark, complex, and violent film. It was a departure from Elvis's mainstream appeal, which was carefully cultivated by his manager, the Colonel, Tom Parker. Django, for Will Smith, would have cut against his image too. Peter talked to Don Siegel about how that dynamic played out behind the scenes when he directed Elvis on Flaming Star. I was intrigued with uh, Elvis playing the role. Although I, I resented the fact that he wasn't treated as the character playing the role, but they wanted him to be Elvis Presley playing the role. That I didn't like. How did you get Presley to give such a good performance in Playing Star? Presley is a, is a very fine actor, uh, and he's given very, very little chance of being a fine actor. He's totally under the domination of the colonel. And it's very, very difficult to prove that the colonel is wrong because Elvis Presley makes all the money there is in the world. So they don't want to change that image. Other influences are working on them all the time. It's very hard to fight the kind of success that Elvis has. I thought he was a wonderful boy. He'd break down and cry and I'd put my arm on him. I became kind of, you know, like his father. You say he broke down and cried, you mean he was very sensitive about very being sensitive. able to do certain things? No, but he was torn with not being able to communicate. Mm -hmm. 
being misunderstood. He's a very polite boy. For the short time that I was with Elvis, he was under my Machiavellian spell, and he was enormously charged up with giving a good performance. It was just five minutes before we got here that she died. If we'd have gotten here just a little bit sooner, she may be alive now. You know it's his fault. In Flaming Star, Elvis plays Pacer Burton, a young Texas rancher whose father is white and whose mother is a Native American from the Kiowa tribe. The woman was bleeding internally. The woman? Hasn't she got a name like white people? Pacer, please. Pacer's caught in the middle of a violent clash of cultures that leads to his mother's death. All she was to all of them was a squaw. Well, this is not going to bring Ma back. A white man shot her, and white men let her die. <laughs> In this scene, he attacks the man he thinks is responsible and breaks down emotionally in his half-brother's arms. Please, Pacer. Drop it. Please. I think he's sensational in the film. It's definitely the best movie Elvis made. And I like some of Elvis's movies. And it's the only Elvis movie that like would be a terrific movie without Elvis. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah I that's mean, very important. He's really terrific in it, but another actor could have played that role and it would still be this terrific 50s Western. I know it's 1960, but we know that, you know... Well, uh, the end of the 50s. Yes, exactly. It was a good decade for Westerns. It was a great decade for Westerns. To me, Flaming Star is one of the most violent, pitiless, ugly Westerns of the 50s. And I'm a fan of 50s Westerns. I like it when they go to like the hateful place that Flaming Star goes to because the whole movie is almost meant to, I feel, almost be a, a rebuke to the brotherhood that was prospered by movies like Broken Arrow. It spits in the face hmm. of that kind of reconciliation between the races. The movie is actually quite shocking by just how violent the characters are, how pitiless the reactions are hmm. to events. It always surprises you by the ugliness that the characters show. And Elvis, as opposed to being this sweet, misunderstood boy, you know, he, he takes his rebellion that he ends up having in the course of the movie to more like a, a Black Panther place, like a Malcolm X place, mm. uh, you know, fighting against race and by any means necessary. It predates some of the violent Sergio Kabuchi westerns, like Navajo Joe, that would come out later. There's a direct link between Flaming Star and, and those movies. It's why Elvis couldn't sing, because it's just too tragic a story. It just doesn't make any sense for him to be singing when he's going on this violent warpath. Right. He doesn't sing in the picture. He sings. Well, it's really clever how Siegel handles it. I mean, it's almost uh, um, it's almost a Godardian comment on cinema itself <laughs> because the audience has paid a ticket to see an Elvis Presley starring vehicle. Now, this is before the Elvis Presley starring vehicle had turned into the banal situation of fun in Acapulco and Paradise Hawaiian style and easy come, easy go, before that had happened. But they were still paying to see an Elvis Presley vehicle. They go and they buy a ticket, the opening credits or a standard 50s Western opening credit sequence with the orangey yellow uh, title font going on as, as you see Elvis Presley and Steve Forrest riding across a, a landscape. The famous theme song, Flaming Star, plays like you'd expect. Flaming Star, don't shine on me, Flaming Star. Then they get to where they're going. 
Turns out the homestead has a little surprise party waiting for them. So that's the surprise. They get there, oh, hey, surprise. Their father, John McIntyre, is there. The Kiowa mother, Dolores Del Rio. The white brother, Steve Forrest, is there. And then their neighbors, who are represented by L.Q. Jones, Richard Jekyll, and Barbara Eaton are there. And so Elvis picks up a guitar, plays a little ditty. Richard Jekyll does some bad square dancing, and it's just kind of what you would expect. Then, party's wrapped up. The neighbors get on the uh, buckboard to go back to their homestead. We follow L.Q. Jones. He goes into the barn, opens up the door, and a Kiowa splits his head open with a tomahawk. And then what happens is an entire massacre happens that kills all the whites there. And in every way, shape, or form, Don Siegel sets you up He sold you a ticket to see an Elvis vehicle, and he gives you, for the first 12 minutes, (laughs) the kind of Elvis vehicle you thought you bought a ticket for. But then to see L.Q. Jones get his head split open by a tomahawk in a close-up, that signals that that movie is over. That movie is as dead as L.Q. Jones. (laughs) And then everything that happens next is coming from an immense cry of hate, of intolerance. And the thing is, he's betting that once he gets you on board this pitiless, violent Western story, that now he's got you. And now you're his for the rest of the journey. As far as I'm concerned, he definitely does. Really worked for you. I think it's fantastic. Flaming Star, I think, is one of the best movies that Siegel made. I'll probably have to put it up. No! It's just me, Dottie. I want to play a little game with you, okay? Sure, Pacer. But did you have to scare me? We're going to get your paw in on it. Oh, he don't play too good. Hey, Doc! Doc Phillips! I watched Flaming Star again after Peter and I talked to Quentin, and this scene jumped out at me. Put her down! Leave her alone! Get your horse and bag and make it fast. Pacer, in his pursuit of justice, takes a young girl hostage, using her as a human shield against his enemies. If you hurt that child, I'll kiss you, you godless savage! Stay where you are, Pierce. It's immediately reminiscent of a scene in Tarantino's film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. $50,000 would buy me a whole lot of chicken mole in Mexico. It's a lot of money. Well, she's a lot of little girl. Or don't you agree? In this scene, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, a 1960s action movie star named Rick Dalton, takes a role as a black hat cowboy named Caleb Decoteau on a show called Bounty Law. And Decoteau uses the same tactic as Pacer. Murdoch Lancer puts $50,000 in my lap, or I'll eat this little picture down a well. Quentin's admiration for Flaming Star is apparent, and the film has had a critical revival, but at the time, it was not a commercial success, especially compared to a typical Elvis movie. Siegel thought that it was because of his choice to depart from convention by stripping out the songs and showcasing Elvis the actor, not the pop star. As a result, he told Peter that the studio didn't give it a fair shot. The picture was not a success. Mm. And he's much more successful when he does nothing but sing. I thought they showed very little imagination. I, I think that if they'd got behind that picture, it might have amounted to something. They wanted to do nothing but hear him sing, and I wanted to, for him to act. I think he'd be a happier boy if he 
gave his unquestioned talents a chance. He, he's in these absolutely banal, stupid pictures endlessly, and he can make it for the rest of his life. So I guess what I'm really trying to say is that Elvis Presley making those pictures is a part. In case you missed that, Siegel felt that Elvis had a lot of potential as an actor, but continued to make the typical Elvis movies, and that by pursuing the status quo, it made him a pod. By pod, he was referring to the theme of his 1956 sci-fi classic, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, in which the population of a small town is being replaced by extraterrestrial clones incapable of human emotion. I'm glad you didn't ask me, because I'll say it on my own, but I feel that this is probably uh, my best, your best film, I think so. Uh, because I hide behind a facade of bad scripts and telling mm -hmm. stories with no import. And I felt that this was a very important story because I think that the world is populated by power. And I wanted to show it. I think so many people have no feeling about uh, cultural things, have no feeling of uh, pain, of sorrow. And I, I wanted to get it over, and I didn't know the better way to get it over than in this particular film. So what especially interested you about body snatches was this idea that you feel that many people are pods. Yes, I do. And I think they're, they're, they're growing. I think the world is sick. I think the pods are taking it over. It's certainly true of people here, pod directors. <laughs> and they had quite a few. Can you play that the very beginning of it again? I want to write down what he said exactly. Uh, I hide behind blah, blah, blah scripts. I hide behind a facade of bad scripts and telling mm -hmm. stories with no import. And I felt that this was a very important story. Frankly, I think he's talking about just the whole concept of being a genre filmmaker in general. Yeah. You know, okay, so there's a crime picture, there's a romantic picture, there's a science fiction picture, there's a Western, and there's a war flick. Nowadays, we are so moved away from that that that's almost romantic. In retrospect, the idea that the studio is making 50 movies and they have 12 directors under contract and you weren't choosing the scripts. You were choosing the best script of the four that they offered you. All right. He does the best of what he's offered that he thinks he can do the best job with. He is a company man, but he's not a pod director. That's right, he's not. Thank you for all this, Q. My pleasure, Peter. Is there anything you'd like to add on any subject? I don't know about any subject. Okay, we'll keep it to this subject, uh, Siegel. <laughs> As usual, you illuminate the past for us. Uh, I, I take that from the man who gives it. Thank you. <laughs> Next time, we're one handshake away from Orson Welles to Ryan Johnson. And a detective came up to me and said, don't go back to your hotel. He says, I'm, I'm from police headquarters. I won't give you my name. I said, why not? He says, I'm just giving you advice. And of course, I would have gone to jail. There would have been no way out of it. I never went back to the hotel. But that wasn't Hearst. That was a hatchet man. Thank God he got the heads up on that That's whole insane. situation. That's crazy. I don't crazy. think I had heard that. that is... Wow. 
absolutely believable wow. and bonkers. Yeah. If Hearst could have done anything at all to bolster the impression that Kane in the movie is a projection of him, it's to pull this power move of trying to use his media reach to control the narrative. Exactly. One Handshake Away is narrated by me, Louise Stratton. Executive produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman. Written and directed by Perry Kroll. Our story editors are Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Produced by me, Louise Stratton and Oren Siegel. Luke Moore, John Teague, and Charlie Morgan of Stack. And Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Perry Kroll, Andy Jaskowitz, and Ian Mont. Production support from Sean Cherry, Barry Finkel, Raj Makaja, Javier Cruces, Richard Shelsinga, Peter Tonget, and Kelsey Hayden. Special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Maura Curran, Leah Reese-Dennis, Josephina Francis, Gary Unger, Colleen Camp, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schuff. One Handshake Away is an Odyssey original. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.